Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we ask that your presence would be with us, enlightening our minds, transforming our hearts, and filling us with your love, and that we can experience the unity of oneness and fellowship that you have for us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 13 in our quarterly, The Fruit of the Spirit. And the lesson title this week is The Fruit of the Spirit, The Essence of Christian Character. And if someone could read for us in the Sabbath lesson, the first paragraph which begins, When Moses. Somebody would read that for us. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, it was then that the Lord revealed to him his character as merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. And so when we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we are changed into the same image from glory, character, to glory, character, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. What do you all think of this first paragraph? Amen. Yeah, it's great. Great first paragraph. And what, do, you, do you agree with the, the quarterly's interpretation of God's glory being his character? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and where do we get that? If somebody were to ask you, well, where are you getting that from? What would you tell them? Jesus of Nazareth. Okay. Exodus 3, when, when Moses said, show me your glory, and the Lord passed before him and said, the Lord, good, merciful, and so forth. Uh, absolutely. Any other, any other places you might pull from to, to emphasize or show that the glory of the Lord is his character, not the bright, fiery stuff primarily. And since we, we all fall short of the glory of God, uh, that means we fall short of imitating his character. Yeah, she says when we all fall short of the glory of God, it means that we all fall short of his character. So we're still looking for some ideas on the, on the glory of, of, of his uh, glory being his character. Anybody remember the prophecy in the Old Testament about the second sanctuary? And that the second sanctuary, not Solomon's, but the one rebuilt, was going to be more glorious than the first sanctuary, than Solomon's temple. Remember this prophecy? And when the family heads that were around for the original captivity, when they saw Solomon's temple destroyed, they were there at the foundation, laying the foundation of the, of the rebuilt temple. They were grieving and mourning. Anybody remember why they were so distraught? Because the second temple is so much, so small, so puny, so insignificant compared to Solomon's temple. Yet the scripture says that the second temple would be more glorious than the first temple. What is it talking about? Why would the second temple, so so much smaller, be more glorious? Because Jesus actually came. So you're saying God's presence made well on the dedication of Solomon's temple. What happened the day of the dedication of Solomon's temple? The priest couldn't enter because of the brightness of his glory. So God's physical presence came in his Shekinah glory at the dedication of the first temple, which was larger and brighter and a bigger light display. Yet the scriptures tell us that it was the second temple where Christ came in his human form was more glorious. What do you think about that? So God came to both. But the second, in human form, is more glorious. Why would you think that would be? But the second temple is where God was able to directly touch humans, to be able to directly minister to humans, where the children gathered around his feet after he cleared the temple with, with the cat of nut tails. Um, that personal touch, uh, that's where the glory comes to you. So, so we could see him more clearly in his human form than we could 
in his unveiled glory. Okay. Wasn't the sacrifice in Solomon's temple the lamb, and this was and Jesus was going to be the sacrifice in this? Well, in Solomon's temple, they certainly were sacrificing the animals, but they were also sacrificing animals. But I mean, though, Jesus would be sacrificed at this temple. Was he sacrificed at this temple? Did they have to rebuild it again? No, was Jesus actually crucified at the temple? No. Right. Right. So the sacrifice didn't happen at the temple, but Jesus walked there. And it tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself into the form of a servant all the way through the cross. And so I think the scripture is trying to tell us with these various um, ideas is that God's true glory isn't simply might and power, but it's the character of the one who wields the might and power. And where was the greatest manifestation of a character of, of self-sacrificing love? Was it in the Old Testament or was it in Christ's life and self-sacrificing death on earth? And so this is where we see the, the greatest revelation of his true essence and character, character of love. Somebody read the memory verse there for us, Colossians one twenty-seven. To them God will to make known what are his riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of This mystery. Have you ever done a search or a study on the mystery of God? Yes. The mystery of God. Let's talk about today, what is this mystery? Let's talk, it says here, the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What do you understand this mystery to be? And we're going to run through some, some texts here and see what the texts tell us. Let's start with Romans 16.25. And it says, Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him, the only wise God be glory forever through Christ Jesus. Amen. This mystery was hidden. What do you think that means? Hidden. A mystery, a mystery hidden. Well, what was hidden was the truth of the essence of God's character. She says what was hidden was the truth of the essence of God's character. Would it be a mystery if it wasn't hidden? He said, would it be a mystery if it wasn't hidden? So, so the, these are great questions. These are the questions we should ask. Would it be a mystery if it wasn't hidden? How or why was this mystery hidden? How did this mystery get hidden? Are we com comfortable that it's the mystery of God's character? God, God has never hidden his character. It's been, it's been maligned. Angels and humans have been deceived about the character of God. His character never been hidden. So, God himself didn't hide it? Are you suggesting maybe somebody else was hiding his character? Yeah, God didn't hide his character. It was, it was shrouded by someone else. What do you think about the long ages? What, what long ages is this referring to? That's so true that the children of Israel didn't give God the chance to show his true character. They were like spoiled kids running around or kids that just didn't get the grip. And God was trying to say, pause, wait, come to me and worship. And they were so tied up in what their distraction was, what they wanted to do, that they didn't sit down with them long enough to let the, his blood shine through to them. They had to get the rules of how to get uh, settled down as, as busy 
crazy kids. And he so so stuck in the rules there because he was trying to get them. So what mystery did they not understand? They, they couldn't wrap their brains around the love of God. The reason that he was taking them from Egypt to Canaan was not to drag them through 40 years of adventure. He wanted to get them there so that they could have a place away from the, the distractions of Egypt and the other people so that they could have time together for him, to be with him to reveal more than just these rules are here so that you will be protected and you will be healthy but they're here also so that my love can come to you and then shine through you to the other well, let's look at some more of these mystery passages Colossians 3, 2-11 through 11. it says surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. It has not been made to men made known to men in other generations as it has now been made known. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together of the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. Kept hidden in God for ages past. Hmm. Who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purpose he accomplished in Christ Jesus. What did you hear in this passage? It adds to our insights regarding this mystery. Mystery hidden in God through ages past. Salvation for everyone, not just the Jews. He said salvation for everyone, not just the Jews, yes. Gentiles are heirs with Israel. Gentiles are heirs with Israel, yes. Uh, um, Why was this to be revealed to the rulers in heavenly realms through the church? Were the heavenly beings mystified? Did they have confusion in their mind? Was there a mystery kept in the heart of God that they didn't fully understand? Hmm. Jesus said clearly that no one understands the Father except the Son. And it was only through the Son that anyone And it says the manifold wisdom of God will be revealed. Was God's wisdom being obstructed or not understood? So the heavenly beings as well. Yes, all in heaven and on earth. Yes. Would the mystery of salvation, that whole plan of salvation for earth, still wasn't understood completely by heavenly realms as well as the mysteries of the people here on earth, even though he tried to show it to them through the, the sanctuary service, but still apparently in heaven. They didn't understand the whole plan of salvation either. I agree. And as we're reading these texts, I want us to be looking for the central theme, the central thread. Because while these texts may sound like they're talking about something different, for instance, this text talked about the mystery that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs. It's still talking about the same central mystery. And we want to see how they all connect together. Here's Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. 
And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment. Keep that little phrase in mind. This mystery will be put into effect when? When the times have reached their fulfillment. See, every one of these passages is adding a little insight. To bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. Now we have a mystery. A mystery about Christ in you. A mystery of the Gentiles being heirs, a mystery that was hidden, a mystery of God's wisdom that wasn't understood to be manifest through the church, a wisdom, a mystery of all things coming together under one head. And then Colossians 1, 26 and 27, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages, here's that same mystery, hidden for ages, and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or Colossians 2, 2 and 3. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may be full of riches of complete understanding, full of the riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What is the mystery? She says it sounds like the incarnation of Christ. But if the mystery also was the glory, also was the character of God, do you think that the beings around, the other beings that God has created in the rest of the universe are looking down to find his people who have a propensity to sin, who Satan described God as being self-centered and selfish, and uh, that's why you couldn't trust him because everything he did was, was out of a selfish character. The, the fact that whenever you truly wrap your brain around God and his character of absolute, complete, unselfish love, and when that soaks into your, your heart and bones, and then that's able to come and shine through you, that it's quite a mystery how someone who hasn't actually sat with God can love him so, if they haven't seen him in person, and that the character can be so transformed. As you mentioned that Satan told lies about God. What did the lies about God do to intelligent beings? Put the fear of God in them. Put the fear of God in them. Oh yeah, isn't that what we're supposed to do? I'm going to put the fear of God in you. If the lies were believed, yes. If the lies were believed, many of the angels, human beings, believed the lies. Did they come to love and trust God more? And then when God, this mystery, do you think God was working to be mysterious? Or God was working to reveal himself to counter the lies? In Old Testament times, do we find God behaving in ways that actually made it easier for Satan to, get a, to, to cause us to be confused? Yes. Yeah. So uh, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. The Korodath and Abiram, 185,000 Assyrians. I mean, do we see God acting in ways that Satan takes and makes capital with and begins to further obstruct God and, and becomes even more mysterious? Wow, how can a God be love and, and behave this way? And this mystery, this mystery of God's character. So what is the mystery we've heard so far? Well, we've heard the mystery is Christ. We've heard that the mystery is Gentiles are heirs along with the Jews. We've heard that the mystery of union of all things, all things under one head, heaven and earth, uh, under one head, Jesus Christ. So the mystery is, is this unity or, or, or bringing all things back under one head. The mystery is Christ living in the believer, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then a truth that was mysterious but which Christ revealed through the church so that God's wisdom could be manifest. 
do you see all these texts describing a mystery? Is there a connection to them all? Do you see a thread? Well, let's see if this adds a little bit to it. Let's see if this text adds a little bit to it. Ephesians 5, 25 and 33. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For what reason? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. We are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. Did that clear up the mystery for you? This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. How does that add? What is the thread that runs through this mystery? What is being described in this passage of Ephesians I just read? God's love for us. God's love for us, but what, what terms is it put on? Is it put on terms that you cannot relate to? Or is it put on terms that you, all of those that are married anyway, have some intimacy with? The two shall become one. One how? How did the two become one? Those in marriage relationships, how did two become one? Heart, mind, in a, in a godly marriage, who do you love more? You or your partner? You or your spouse? Who do you love more? Your spouse. The other-centered love, the unity of, of giving. Is this the mystery? The mystery of God's character of love, other-centered. God is love, and love is not self-seeking. Is this the mystery that has been hidden, that we have a God who actually gives of himself, sacrifices himself for his creatures? How has it been hidden then? By the light of faith. How is it revealed? The truth. Truth revealed where? In Christ, but notice what Christ revealed. He didn't just reveal a self-sacrificing love as God giving of himself, but he revealed the power of love. And that the power of love is life. That God's law of love is the principle of life. It heals, it restores. And thus, it says, this impact of understanding and embracing this mystery, when this mystery comes to our heart, it says in Psalms that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, restoring, regenerating. So listen to this mystery. We're still dealing with the mystery. This is out of... 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? What is the mystery that has been kept hidden? The mystery that we will all be changed. What is it? Christ in you, bringing all things under one head. The manifold wisdom of God revealed in Christ. 
Is this mystery about us being changed a different mystery than Christ in you, the hope of glory? Is it a different mystery than a unification under one head, even Jesus Christ? Is it a different mystery than the two becoming one flesh, unity of Christ and his bride? Or is all of it the same mystery? Well, John 17, 3, anybody know it? Yes. This is life eternal. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, who now is sent. The law of love is the law of life. Knowing God, coming back into unity with him, we have what? The law written on our hearts and minds, the new covenant experience, the law of life, which is the law of love. That they might be one as thou and She's quoting more John 17, where, where Jesus prays, I pray that they will be one, as you are one, as you and I are one. Me and them, you and me, all of us one. The mystery that all will be one under one head, even Jesus Christ. We come back into unity of heart, mind. We're reconciled back to God. We love him and others more than we love ourselves. This is also having the law written on the heart and mind, the new covenant experience, Hebrews chapter 8. This is partaking of the divine nature. In other words, this is Christ in you. No longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We are now restored to a life of love. This mystery is all the same. And this, and this mystery is for all of God's creation that he wants to heal and restore. But death then comes from selfishness, not knowing God, severed from, from God. And so destroying death would be destroying the lies about God that keep us from knowing him. Selfishness in our heart with love that the Holy Spirit puts in. And so... The mystery is the mystery of God's character of love, broken in mankind when Adam believed the lies and sinned, hidden from our eyes by Satan's lies, revealed by and restored into humanity by Christ, for which we can all partake again. Question, when will all of this happen? Yeah. Revelation ten seven. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. The mystery of God will be accomplished when? Remember the other passage we read a little ago when it says the time shall reach their fulfillment? The mystery of God will be accomplished? When the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet. What happens at the sounding of the seventh angel's trumpet? Anybody know? Revelation eleven fifteen. It says the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. What is the kingdom of God? What did Jesus say? The kingdom of God is within you. What is that kingdom? Is it the kingdom of love? The kingdom of the world is the kingdom of what? Of selfishness. And so when the seventh angel is out to sound, it says the kingdom of the world will become or be the kingdom of God and his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Where does that kingdom take place? Where is the battle between Christ and Satan fought? In our hearts hearts and minds. This is talking about the mystery of God in you. The mystery of Christ in you. A transforming, regenerating, renewing work. Removing that fear and selfishness. As it says in Revelation, those that are ready to meet Christ when he comes, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're not loving self. They're selfless. They're other-centered. The mystery of God has been, been experienced. They've had the law of love reproduced in their heart. Revelation 16, 7, the seventh angel, a voice is heard coming out of the temple in heaven saying, it is done. It is done. What is done? 
the sealing of God's church, the purification of his bride, the cleansing of, of his people. This is also known, by the way, as the cleansing of the sanctuary. Same thing. The cleansing of the sanctuary message is the healing, the restoring the law of love in the hearts and minds of God's people. So that the bride is ready to meet Christ. This is out of um, Christian Education, page 77. It says, when we seek for appropriate language in which to describe the love of God, we find words too tame, too weak, too far beneath the theme, and we lay down our pen and say, no, it cannot be described. We can only do as the beloved disciple said, behold, what manner of love is the Father bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. In attempting any description of this love, we feel that we are as infants lisping their first words. Silently, we may adore, for silence in this matter is only eloquence. This love is past all language to describe. It is the mystery of God in the flesh, God in Christ, and divinity in humanity. Christ bowed down in unparalleled humility that in his exaltation to the throne of God, he might also exalt those who believe in him to the seat with him upon his throne. All who look upon Jesus in faith that the wounds and bruises that sin has made will be healed shall be made whole. Thoughts. Is this powerful? When you read this passage, this mystery, do you, did your mind immediately go to this eternal battle, this battle waging from, from before the earth was created between Christ and Satan, a battle for your mind over who you can trust, a battle over the principle of watching out for me based on fear and insecurity versus, a, versus loving God and others more? Do you see, this is the war, because I'm going to tell you right now on planet earth, uh, and in Christianity, there's a different thing being taught. There's a thing being taught that we as Christians have to prepare for a war against jihad. That we as Christians need to have a second crusade. That we need to promote certain political groups and parties that will make more planes and war, war machines to go after the, uh, the jihadists that want to kill us. Is this how Christ battles? Second no. Corinthians 10 through through 5, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we use, they're not worldly weapons. On, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Our battle is the battle over the truth about God's character of love, and our responsibility is to live that love and present that love. This is out of um, Signs of the Times, November 18, 1889. Christ came to our world to, to become our sacrifice. Now, this is an interesting phrase, how she says this. I, I don't think any of us would talk this way, but it's very, very enlightening. It says, he came to discover to our eyes the gems of truth. He came to discover to our eyes. Who needed to discover the gems of truth? We did. we did. In other words, he came to reveal it to us, but it's an interesting way of phrase. He came to discover to our eyes the gems of, gems of truth, to place them in new setting, the framework of, to, new setting, the framework of truth. He brought out of the treasure house of God things new and old. I'm going to pause there. He brought out of the treasure house of God things new and old. What do you think new and old? What new, what old did he bring to earth out of the treasure house of God? She's saying all of his parables and stories are pretty much metaphorically told in the Old Testament. How about older than the Old Testament? 
Is there something older than the Old Testament? What is the Revelation chapter 14? Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And it says there's a, an everlasting or eternal gospel. Eternal. How, how long, how old is eternal? How far back is it true? Is it true forever, as far back as time goes? Is it still true, the eternal gospel? Yes. Well, what is the gospel? God is love. About the character of God. God is love. I've heard three people, God is love. You see, a lot of, a lot of Christianity teaches the gospel is Christ died to pay your penalty so that you can have salvation. If that is the good news in the eternal gospel, has that been always been true? No. Has it always been true that God is love? That God is not the kind of person Satan says he is? Yes, the eternal good news. So, so the things that are old, what about the things that are new? What new did he bring out? There you go. Yes, the new application because of our need, man in sin. God is love. That has never changed. But even though God is love and loves us, we've got a problem, don't we, once Adam sinned? Even though God is love and his character didn't change, he's not mad. He wants to save. We have a need that we can't provide. And Christ came out from God to provide that need, that new need that wasn't needed had, had Adam not sinned. And so Christ in you, the new truth of God's love revealing and applied to the need that we had. He sent the Holy Spirit. That was new. He sent the Holy Spirit. And we find that through Scripture, don't we? Old and new. So that we might be able to trace down the links of the great plan of salvation. Through the sacrificial offering of the Jewish dispensation, we are pointed forward to Christ, the Lamb of God, which... Notice the words. This is, this is right out of Scripture. This is a quote from Scripture, but, but we sometimes forget it in our traditional thinking. The Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Not appeases an angry and wrathful Father. The Lamb of God who takes away our sin, who heals, who restores. When Christ came, it was to engage in the conflict with the enemy of God and man. Wow, we have a common enemy. Did you realize that man and God has a common enemy? On this earth, in the sight of the universe of heaven. But why was it necessary to wage the war in the sight of other worlds? It was because Satan had been an exalted angel. And when he fell, he induced many angels to join him in his revolt against God's government. He worked in the minds of the angels as he works in the minds of men today. Where is this battle fought? In our minds, that's where it's fault. He made a pretension of loyalty to God, and yet he argued that angels should not be under law. He inculcated his ideas, his rebellion and enmity and hatred of God's law originated in the minds of angels in heaven through his influence. He caused the fall of man through the same temptations with which he had caused the fall of angels. And in the world where he proposed to work out his principles of rebellion, the battle had to be fought, that all might behold the real nature and results of disobedience to God's great moral standard. He represented God in a false light, clothing him with his own attributes. Christ came to represent the Father in his true character. He showed that he was not, get this, underline this, he showed that he was not an arbitrary judge. Amen. Ready to bring judgments upon men and delighting in condemning and punishing them for their evil deeds. How many times have we heard this about the Father? Countless. Countless times. 
It's one of Satan's lies that keep us from trusting and knowing God. It obscures our knowledge of him. It's part of what keeps God mysterious to us. We can't see the true light of his glory. We won't be changed as the, as the lesson talked about from glory to glory as long as we see God as an arbitrary judge waiting to punish sinners. The Lord proclaimed his character to Moses on the mount. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. What do you think about that last little phrase, and by no means clear the guilty? A lot of people latch onto that and say, see, that's right there. I mean, it's gracious, loving, and all. But eventually there comes a point where grace and mercy stop, love stops, and then God takes off his priestly garments and puts on his judicial garments to execute justice and punish the guilty. You've heard this said? Why will he not let the guilty go unpunished? Because he's a God of love. And a God of- Explain that. He says because he's a God of love and freedom. Explain how that, what, what that means. How can a loving God force a being to, uh, to, to be constrained in his company if the being didn't want to be there? Are you following that? I guess the question, see, the question arises, where does the punishment from sin arise? The wages of sin is sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Our life is found only in life eternal is knowing God and our unity with him. And this mystery being reproduced within us. Do we have the freedom to tell God no? Do we have the freedom to say, God, I don't want to be part of your circle of love. I don't want the Holy Spirit in my life. If we do that, what happens to us? Will God be a God of love if he ultimately, to those people who insist on leaving him, says, no, I will chain you to my side and force you to live in my presence? Would that be a God of love? No. And I've said this uh, before, but it's been a while. But imagine you're um, married and you come home and... Sadly, your wife tells you she's leaving you for another man. But you love her in a genuine loving way. You would feel great heart sickness and and grief and brokenness. But your love wants to reach out to reconcile to this wife. We sit the story of this in Hosea, don't we? In Gomer, we find this happening. So Hosea stays and continues to reach out for her. So you reach out to your wife and you explain your love to her. Would you get a set of handcuffs and chain her to the wall and put a gun to her head and say, no, look, love me or I'm going to kill you? Would you do that? What would happen if you did? So you explain your love. You have an envoy. You give gifts. You have an ambassador, somebody to represent you. If she insists on leaving after everything you do, what's the only loving course of action you can take? What's the only just action you can take? Do you understand God's love and justice are the same? It's the only functional action you can take. Some people do what you described, and we recognize it as sick and healthy and dysfunctional. She says some people do, as I described, this chaining, this bondage to the wall, and we all recognize it as sick, dysfunctional, and unhealthy. The only healthy action that can be taken in such a circumstance is to let the person go, who absolutely, under all efforts to save and redeem and reconcile, insists on leaving. And we find that true in the prodigal son, where the father let the prodigal go, but the prodigal eventually woke up and came home. What would have happened if that father would have just restrained the prodigal from ever leaving? Would the prodigal son have ever had a heart to be there? No. 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 You see? All right. How about this? This is out of Signs of the Times, March 25, 1897. 
What is this mystery of which Paul writes to the Ephesians and to the Colossians saying that it was given to him to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which had been hidden from ages of past generations? One translation reads, which has been kept in silence through eternal ages. Many have endeavored to define the mystery which Paul here mentions, but it embraces much. In our ideas in regard to the love, the goodness, and the compassion of God are strangely limited. Do you believe that's true? Strangely limited. Because our knowledge of spiritual things has become so dwarfed and enfeebled, we have not advanced from light to greater light. The Lord has not been able to open to our understanding many precious things. Why has he not been able to open to our understanding many precious things? Why? Because we're enfeebled because we don't understand what? The true love of the character of God. Because we insist on incorporating their ideas about God, these other ideas that Satan projects onto him. Satan's character, an arbitrary God, a God who will use his power to inflict punishment, a God who will torture people in the end, a God who must be appeased, a wrathful God, an angry God. As long as we continue to incorporate these ideas, then we can't understand and we can't advance from truth to truth. In view of the, it says, the Lord has not been able to open to our understanding many precious things. In view of the losses which we have sustained by our earthliness and commonness, we have much to make us humble. Our earthliness. What makes something earthly rather than heavenly? Self-centeredness. Selfishness. Our earthliness. Do we get earthliness incorporated into our belief systems, into our teachings about God? Do we project onto God our version of what justice looks like and then claim that that's what he will do? Yes? It all boils down to motive. If you think of it as motive, what is the motive of God in each of his acts in Genesis? His motive... I like it. Motive of love or motive of selfishness. Yeah, exactly. So, continuing on. God had a knowledge of the events of the future, even before the creation of the world. He did not make his purposes to fit circumstances, but he allowed matters to develop and work out. He did not work to bring about a certain condition of things, but knew that such a condition would exist. The plan that should be carried out upon the defection of any of the high intelligences of heaven. This is the secret. The mystery which has been hidden from all ages. What is the mystery? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A love that has no limits. A love that has no boundary. A love that has no ability to be measured or constrained or defined. A limitless, infinite love. This is the mystery. And this is God. And we have the privilege of partaking of that divine nature and loving like he loves. Yes. Now, isn't that our mission as a church to reveal that? And why aren't we doing it? What do you think? The manifold wisdom of God is to be revealed through the church to to the uh, angels in heaven. Yes, it's our job. Why are we not? He says, why are we not revealing this mystery? Yes. We can only reveal what's within us. We can only reveal what's within us. What keeps us from experiencing this mystery, this love for God and for others? Earthly minds and earthly constructs about God. We just got off Sabbath lesson. (laughs) So we're moving right along now. Okay. Alrighty. Sunday's lesson. It says middle of the middle of the Sunday's lesson says Matthew 633. And I think it just flows very nicely from what we're talking about. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. What is the kingdom of God that we're seeking? 
hearts and minds that love God and love others more. And we seek that first, then all this other stuff will be added unto us. Does it mean as we seek the kingdom of God that we are seeking, so are we seeking for our eternal life? Is that what it means? Oh, we're seeking to save others. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our lives for our brothers. So are we seeking to save self when we seek the kingdom? Are we seeking to save others? How much of Christianity is all about self-salvation? Have you been saved? Have you been saved? Have you been saved? Get saved. How about... Seeking the kingdom of God, does it mean that we seek to get our record books in heaven expunged? The payment made, the sins pardoned? Do we make self the center? Is that the kingdom of God? Did Christ make self the center? Have you ever heard somebody going through a hard time and they say, life just isn't fair. And even maybe they pray, why me, Lord? I mean, I haven't done anything to deserve this. I've only done good things. You heard this? When Christ was on earth. And he was being mistreated. Could he, if he wanted to, justly and rightly say, Father, I've never done anything wrong. I've only healed the sick and fed the hungry and even raised the dead. I've only done good. It's just not fair why this is happening to me. Why Why me, Father? And if you heard Christ saying that, would you think, wow, what a mature being there. Would it be a, a, a revelation of love or self-focus? Yes, you notice even the one who had the right, who could say that truthfully, wasn't concerned with self. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. John, this is your mom. Mom, this is your son. Providing for his mother, concern for others on the cross. Would we be seeking to be like God in heart if we're seeking his kingdom? And then the question to the class, how What would this look like here in this room, in this church, in this community? How does it look? How can we live that here, now, today? Not theoretically in the future, today. How can we live that love? What is your motive? Christ can enter our heart, and that's it. Boy, application questions are uncomfortable, aren't they? (laughs) Quit trying to, to, you know, have everybody throw our doctrines on them, you know, that don't keep Sabbath and don't... And eat meat. I mean, just give people a little bit of a break more often if they don't believe exactly like we do. You mean love people who don't go to church on the day we do? (laughs) Wow, that's a novel idea. How about loving the homosexual? No? (laughs) Did Jesus love the prostitute? Yeah. How about... Jesus didn't condemn prostitutes. How about... Yeah, he didn't condemn. So, maybe having attitudes that we recognize every one of us in this room, in this church, in this community, are suffering from the same sickness. We all are in a terminal condition, and we all need the same remedy. And so when we see somebody struggling with what we call sin in their life, do we condemn them? Or do we have compassion? As a physician... And there's several physicians in the room, and you're in the ER, and you see somebody come in with a, with a cold. You see somebody come in with uh, end-stage cancer or late-stage AIDS with various opportunistic infections, and you know they don't have very much time to live. 
Do you say, well, uh, you know, I'll have compassion on the person with something very simple and minor, but I'm not going to be compassionate to the person who's dying? Or do we see those that are the sickest with the greatest compassion? Do we see people that are the sickest in sin with the greatest compassion and reach out and love? How did Christ treat people? Even his enemies, even those who were trying to kill him, how did he treat them? He loved them. He didn't expose them. He didn't reveal their defects and get them run out of town on a rail, which he could have done. Can we practice that in the way we treat each other here? That we actually, you actually know that in this room, in this community, in this church, that these people in this room love you. They'll protect you. If somebody hears a rumor about you, they're not going to jump to a conclusion. They'll come and talk to you. Say, hey, I, I, I've heard something. and I want to, if there's a problem, I want to help you. Do we practice that? Or do we call up our best friends and everyone else and tell what we just heard? How do we do this? Should we? Should we be working to, to live this way? Yes. Amen. I think besides compassion to others, whether they go to church on the end of the day, I think a large part has to be respecting others. Not just, I don't want to be known as a church that feels sorry and cares for people. I want us to understand that other people may believe differently. And we have to respect that that is what they have come to believe. Doesn't mean we can't continue to try and share what we believe. But you need to have respect for them to listen to you. Romans chapter 14, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. That we can love people and respect their, their journey. And that they are growing in the truth as they're capable of comprehending it. And if you read in Thessalonians, those who are lost, are, it doesn't say these, uh, those, those who are lost in the end are lost because they didn't have the right doctrines. It says they're lost because they didn't love the truth and thus be saved. Meaning it's a heart of truth, a heart that's willing to grow in truth, an attitude that says, hey, whatever I know today, I'm finite. God's infinite. I'm going to continue to grow and advance in my knowledge of God and his kingdom and, and his truth, uh, and, uh, being open to correction as the truth is revealed through Scripture, through the Holy Spirit, to our minds. And so there will be people on that journey with a heart of truth, heart that loves truth, that does not see the same things we see because they're not in the place. They haven't traveled the journey we've traveled. So I think that's a great point. We like to share truth because truth sets people free. We like to share truth because truth sets people free. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Monday's lesson talks about other fruits of the Spirit uh, that we didn't talk about in the quarterly, called, including godliness, virtue, hope, knowledge, discernment. And, and as we think about all these particular fruits, godliness, virtue, hope, knowledge, discernment, how do we experience these fruits? Are they miraculous gifts bestowed in a snap-of-the-fingers way? Kind of like, you remember in the Old Testament, when they were going to build a sanctuary, God gave gifts to certain people of metalworking and so forth, where they instantly had this ability to be very gifted in, in craftsmanship and, and, and working of metals to be able to, cre- uh, to, to build the, the sanctuary. Is that the type of thing that happens? Are these gifts bestowed like that? Or are these gifts, do these gifts require your and my cooperation with divinity? Do we actually have to make choices? Do we have to practice these gifts? Do we have to choose to study, choose to hope, to exercise our power of choice to act in godly ways? Well, actually, one of the gifts in Hebrew says that the mature are those who've learned by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. By practice, 
We have to practice thinking. We have to practice reasoning. One of the purposes of this class is not to tell anybody what to think, but to present things to you in a way that challenges you to think, to get you to reason, to get you to weigh things out for yourself. Because the more you exercise those neural circuits, the stronger they get. Let's go to Tuesday's lesson. And it's the last two paragraphs. It says... At the same time, too, we can face a danger. As Christians, we have the example of Jesus, the only sinless human being who ever lived. As we compare ourselves to him, how easy it is could be for us to be discouraged. How easy it is to see his sinlessness and perfection in contrast to our sinful, sinfulness and weakness. We do have a perfect standard to follow, a perfect law to obey, and a perfect savior to emulate. As we all know, we often fall short of that standard, of that law, and of that savior. How easy it can be, too, after falling and falling, after not seeing the kind of growth we would like, to get discouraged, even to the point of giving up, thinking, why bother, I just can't do it. Here, though, is where we need to understand fully what salvation by faith is about. Here is where we need to understand where our salvation lies, and here is where we need to understand what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross. Thoughts about this? Where does our salvation lie? In Jesus In Jesus, meaning, what does that mean? Jesus paid it all. It lies in Jesus and us. It lies in Jesus in us, meaning Christ in you, the hope of glory. As we partake of Christ, as we experience Christ in us. So Christ achieved something that we could not achieve, or could we have done this without Christ? No. No, so our salvation is in Christ in that Christ came to provide us whatever was necessary for salvation. What was necessary for salvation? What is the debt that was paid? What debt? Who pays those wages? Where do those wages arise? The wages of sin is death, yes. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Why does sin bring forth death? Because God inflicts that death penalty? So then, if God isn't inflicting it, who's the payment made to? The devil? So the devil is the one being paid by Christ? Well, let's not laugh. This, this This is commonly thought and commonly taught. It's okay. We should, we should be able to, to process these things out in, in understanding and support, right? Sure. It's a reasonable question. Is it wage more an outcome rather than a payment? The wages, the outcome of sin is death? Because like as you said earlier, the outcome of love is life. The outcome of sin is death. Okay. So if we understand it that way, then sin pays its wage. The wage is death. Do we need to be more afraid? In fact, do we need to be afraid of God at all? No. How many in Christianity, though, are more fearful of standing before God without an intercessor than they are of sin, which is infecting their heart? Which are more afraid of God and being in His presence than they are of the sin which is in their heart? We should be fearful of unremedied sin in our characters and minds, not of God. He's the one who's going to cure us. Look at sin like you would cancer. You're not afraid of your oncologist. Your oncologist wants to cure you. What you should fear is unremedied cancer. That's what you should fear, because that will destroy you. And so, sin pays its wage, the wage is death. Christ came, and it, we can use language if we, if we understand the meaning that says, and paid a terrible price, or a heavy price, or an infinite price. We can use that language, can't we? 
in order to achieve our salvation. You could say that somebody who is dying of uh, leukemia and they have a loved one who's willing to give bone marrow, that the person who donates bone marrow is paying a price, aren't they? They are. Does that mean they're paying a price to the administration to have legal permission to save the person who's dying of cancer? No. No. The price paid was never to the Father or to the law in order to get legal permission so God can save us. That's all a distortion. The price paid was what was necessary to remedy sinfulness. Sinfulness had to be healed, fixed, changed. Mankind had to actually be remitted back. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Without the shedding of Christ's blood, without his accomplishments in Calvary, sinfulness in mankind would not remit back. Mankind would not remit back to God's original design as God designed mankind and Adam to be. And Christ achieved that in his personhood. So Christ achieved revelation of truth to destroy lies that we've already talked about that kept God mysterious to us. Now we can know God in Jesus Christ. The lies are removed, but Christ did more. He actually achieved in his human brain a perfection of godliness. He rewrote or put God's law of love back into the human species in his own life and destroyed the law of sin and death, the infection of self-centeredness at the cross when he gave himself freely. They couldn't take his life. And so he rises, he rises. And it says in Hebrews 5, 8, once he is made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. So in Christ we have the truth that wins the trust, but also in Christ we have perfection of human character in harmony with God, and thus we become actually partakers of his nature through the work of the Holy Spirit. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This is a restorative, a healing, a regenerating process that we actually come to love God and love others so much that we would give our lives to help others rather than exploit others. That is regeneration and salvation of character and which will ultimately result in physiological eternal life. Yes? Why then does the Bible say, fear the Lord? Yes, fear the Lord, as in, Awe, admire, respect. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Notice the phrase, fear God and give glory to him. Who is being told to fear God in this context? Those who are going to give him glory. And what is glory? We just talked about it. What is glory? So those who are going to fear him in this passage are going to be giving him glory, meaning revealing his character in their life. Perfect love is God's character, right? So we will have his love restored in our heart if we're going to give him glory. We all agreed? Perfect love casts out all fear. So if we have the love of God restored in our heart and we love him perfectly, will we fear him? So fear doesn't mean terror. It means awe, admiration, amazement, wonderment, respect, incredible. Be overwhelmed with him. That's what that word means in that context. It doesn't mean be terrified of him. Good question. Good question. Well, all through the Bible, when he revealed himself, he always came and said, fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Every time. That's good. That's good. All right. Last, uh, last point of the lesson. Now, the Thursday's lesson, it talks about things that the lesson suggests to help us grow in this godliness. And it says, Bible study, prayer, right thinking, and Christian witness were the things that it mentioned. I just wanted to point out in closing that those who put Christ on the cross did three out of four of these. Those with Christ on the cross studied their Bibles. They prayed openly and regularly, and they were worried about how they looked and appeared and witnessed to others. Did they have right thinking? 
starts with the heart. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Make a tree good and, and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. It is about the mind. It is about the heart. It is about regenerating the character so that selfishness is put away and we love others more. And then all these other things will be redemptive. But if we don't have the heart change first, you can do every one of these other things and you can still crucify Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the mystery of God revealed in Christ, that you have an infinite love that loved us so much that you gave your only Son to bring us the truth and to transform humanity back to your original ideal. We now entrust, open our hearts to you and ask for the pouring of your Spirit, who will take all that Christ has achieved and reproduce it in us so that it is no longer we, our sinful selves, living, but Christ, who loves others most, living within us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.